0: As Jacob said, we're uh, beginning a series on work uh, that will last throughout January. Uh, This day we'll be talking about the glory of work and focusing primarily on uh, creation and the cultural mandate that God gave in the beginning and what that says about our work. Then, Brian, next week we'll talk about work and the fall, how, to, how sin affected our work, and how do we deal with that, and then the next Sunday, redemption and work, and then consummation of work. Now, of necessity, it's hard not to talk about all of those things every week, in a way, um, but I'm going to try to avoid, uh, especially weeks three and four, talking about uh, the redemption of work and the consummation of work. But there will be a little bit of that this morning, but we're going to try to isolate each of those uh, a bit as we're able to um, and and focus primarily on what creation says about work. Now, I've put the passages in the bulletin on pages 6, 7, and 8 because they're interrelated. And here you'll see that there is uh, a passing from creation to redemption now, this is. these are uh, wonderful passages, honestly, that you should have under your belt, so to speak, of knowing what their relationship is and how they kind of function and work with each other because it says so much about who you are as a human being. You've got to know these passages to know who you are as a human being and know your dignity and significance in this world As one made in the image of God. So, what you have is Genesis 1, the description of God making man. And it's unique in the whole of chapter 1 in God's creation of the world. It's the apex of that creation, kind of like a stair step, or like the theater has been created in creation, and finally, the whole point of it is the making of man in the end of Genesis 1. Much more time devoted to it. It's obvious this is the centerpiece of chapter 1. Then Psalm 8 is a meditation on Genesis 1. That's a real neat thing that we get to have is this psalmist's meditation on Psalm 1 and the significance of Psalm 1. And then on page 8... We'll read Hebrews chapter 2, which is this writer's meditation on Psalm 8. Okay? So, or really Genesis 1 as well. But he takes both Genesis 1 and Psalm 8, and he is speaking to the issue of okay, creation is under man, but then in a sense, it's really not because of sin. What has Christ come to do about that? And what's significant about this is you'll see that a critical aspect of Christ's salvation is to restore reign to human beings. Because it is vital to us as image bearers to reign in this earth. We were made to reign. We are redeemed to reign. And so this does point to the consummation. It points to the future. And it shows this continuity between what we have been made to be and do in this world and what we will be and do in the next world. Because rain means the same thing. He's saying, subdue the earth and rule over it. And Psalm 8 celebrates this rule even in a sinful state. Hebrews 2 comes along and says... Yes, we do rule, but not really. But it has been totally restored or initially restored in Jesus Christ with the indication that it will be completely restored one day. The whole meaning of mankind is bound up in image and rule. And if we don't understand this, we have no idea what we're here for. We have no idea what our work is for. Why do we work? What's it, What's this... Uh, what, what is this nine-tenths of our life to do with anyway? So, let's uh, read these passages and then we'll dive into them. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And So now Psalm 8, his reflection in Genesis 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings or a little lower than God. It could be interpreted either way and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And it's interesting, the first statement of how majestic is your name is followed by this one. And this one seems to say all the more how majestic is your name in the earth that you have made man to be the ruler over earth. All the more how majestic is your name that you would do this uh, for lowly mankind. And then finally... Hebrews 2. And you'll see here he quotes Psalm 8. For it was not to angels... He's making the point that God has saved human beings, flesh and blood human beings. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere... What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Thus the reading of God's Word. Let us pray. O Lord, we pray that you would bless us with new insight into your glory, and Lord, into the meaning of our lives as those made in your image, so that, Lord, we would truly Honor you, we would truly make you known, not only Lord by what we specifically talk about in prayer and worship and fellowship and and ecclesiastical ministry and particular uh, spiritual mercy ministry, but Lord in the everyday life of the work that we do, whether as Jacob says, it was it's in the home. Uh, whether we're students, whether we're in the workplace, uh, whatever our labor, that, Lord, we will see it all as part of our being, your image, and manifesting uh, your glory in all that we do. Bless us, Lord, to this end, we pray, amen. <clears throat> all right, let me begin with a few statements. The first is by a Jewish religious leader from about the time of Christ, and the second is from uh, Eusebius, a Christian bishop and historian that lived several centuries after Christ. <clears throat> Here is the uh, Jewish statement. And and what, what this illustrates is what still plagues the American church, as I've had several conversations recently from people that have come from other uh, church backgrounds, and how pervasive the idea is that the real significant work on earth is what guys like me do and yours is just important in so much as you support what I do Um, which we'll get to in a minute you you know that somebody like me must have thought that up (laughs) to think everybody else's work is insignificant but it's pretty important that you do it or I wouldn't get paid you know it's like who thought that up you know crazy people Uh, well not crazy but uh, misguided let's say okay so here, is, uh, early, here are early examples of this. I thank Thee, O Lord my God, that You've given me my lot with those who sit in the house of learning and not with those that sit at the street corners. For I'm early to work and they are early to work. I'm early to work on the words of the Torah. They are early to work on the things of no moment. I weary myself and they weary themselves. I weary myself and profit thereby. They weary themselves to no profit. No profit. I run and they run. I run towards the life of the age to come. They run to the pit of destruction. Rather bleak, I would say. Eusebius, two ways of life were given by the law of Christ to his church. This is wrong, okay? But this is his opinion. Two ways of life given by Christ, okay? One is above nature and beyond the common human living, wholly and permanently separate from the common and customary life of mankind. It devotes itself to the service of God alone. Such then is the perfect form of the Christian life. And the other, more humble, more human, permits men to have minds for farming, for trade, and the other, more secular interests as well as religion, and a kind of secondary grade of piety is attributed to them. Now, this sounds really uh, foreign in some ways to us, but it's very interesting how pervasive in modern Christianity this idea is. For instance, now I won't name this organization, but it's a national and international organization, and it deals with living the next half of your life better than you did the first half of your life, okay? Here's some quotes. And it, also a sad and interesting part of this, it's oriented to leaders and obviously fairly wealthy people who even have the capacity in the second half of their life to do something different, which to me is just appalling. But here's here's some quotes. Uh, Phrases from their website. Teaching, coaching, and connecting marketplace leaders to discover God's calling on their lives and engage in the issues Jesus cares about. Because he hasn't cared about what you've done for 30 years up to this point. So why don't you do something now that he cares about? Or... Now to chart a more meaningful course. Your course wasn't meaningful now up to this point. Now we're going to chart a more meaningful course. This program is designed to help high-capacity leaders move from success to significance by living a life with greater joy and impact. Up till now, you haven't had significance. Up to now, there's no significance. But now, all you've done up to now, you've had success. Now, let's move to significance. And they actually hand out this. The executive certificate in second half significance. You can have a certificate that shows that you're now holding the possibility of significance in the second half of your life. Now, this um, mentality is seen in people thinking that they do their work in order mainly to give money to the church, that that's its spiritual significance. Or that they do their work in order then at night and on the weekend to do truly spiritual things of significance. Or that they do their work And the spiritual significance is that they bear witness to Christ at their work. And they have a Bible on their desk, or they witness, or in some way. But the spiritual significance and holiness and godliness of the work itself, the glory of work as one in the image of God, is what is so often missing in Christian thinking. So... Turning to Genesis 1 and Psalm 8, we see quite the opposite there. First of all is the description of God himself in Genesis 1. And we won't go into, you know, the... uh, A lot of detail as to what is being set forth here, but just speak in some general terms of what how God is being set forth. Number one, he is being set forth here as the sovereign king over the universe. And he is ruling by royal decree in chapter one. Okay? He's the sovereign king over the universe. And he's ruling by his royal decrees in chapter 1 where he says, Let there be, and it was. Let there be, and it was. Psalm 33, verse 9, shares in the vocabulary of Genesis 1, okay? So it's the same kind of words. And it describes God's creativity that he spoke, it was, that's from Genesis 1. And then he commanded and it stood firm. And so in that way, we see the commands of the king. In Psalm 148, it says he commanded and they were created. He established, he gave a decree that cannot be transgressed. So these are the kingly decrees of God. And John Steck puts it this way. God's first acts, his sovereign creating acts are depicted as the initial edicts of the great king by which he founded and ordered His kingdom. And the very existence of the creatures is their obedience to his edict. Is it that interesting? They came into being out of sheer obedience to the decree of the God. You will exist. Bam, here we are. We're existing. We've come into being because the king has declared that we should come into being. And so he then judges their existence is good. And, and this is reflected later in the Psalms where it says he uh, has stormy winds that fulfill his words. Or Psalm 119.91 uh, that claims all things are your servants. You see, he's the cosmic ruler and all things are his servants. All things do his bidding as king. And there's this description of let us make God in our image. And the idea here is that he's addressing the divine council or the heavenly court of angelic beings, which speaks of his royalty. Okay, And there's some of that maybe why Psalm 8 describes in the plural as Elohim. It could be heavenly beings or angels. And the idea is that You are made in the image of God and the whole royal court. Which again is going to speak to our royalty. That we're in the image of God and his royal court. That the royal court has representation on earth. So he is seated high in a throne and exalted in Isaiah 6. And in the same way... The uh, God says, "Whom shall I send? Who will go for us?" There again, you see, there's the royal court idea in Isaiah chapter six. And so here is God, a king presiding over heaven and Earth. So that's point one, that God is a king. Secondly, then, humanity is created like this God. In the image of this God. And the one thing that is given us about God in chapter 1 is his kingship. And we'll see also his craftsmanship. So humanity is created like this God with this special role to represent him, to image him. And it's interesting that in uh, the surrounding cultures, a powerful earthly king to claim their dominion would put an image of themselves in different places in their dominion to indicate I rule here, to to represent their rule. And here is God setting man on earth to represent God's own rule on earth. Now, obviously... This rule better be carried out under the rule of that God and in total submission to him and for his glory and honor or everything blows to pieces as we see in the fall as Brian will set forth. But it doesn't take away from the fact that to use the very same word that these kings would use to put up images of themselves. God is putting an image of himself on earth that represents him and that carries out his rule upon earth. That is the very definition of mankind early on. So that we are his earthly uh, delegates and our earthly task is similar to the heavenly court. And so we are representing and extending in some way God's rule on earth through the work that we do. And so we have this power in a sense to share in God's rule or administration of God's resources and creatures. And some of what I'm talking about here comes from Uh, Middleton's great little uh, book on uh, the image of God then thirdly we've had God as the royal king we're made in his image as royalty and then added to that is God is set forth here as the craftsman or artisan right you can see how creation is set forth that in days one two and three we see the structure or the space that God makes. And then in days four, five, and six, he fills those structures so that uh, each each part of creation is filled. So the uh, light is made, uh, the structure of, of, of day and night, and then you have the sun and the moon to fill it on day four. So... There's the structure, there's the filling. Then you have the air above and the uh, water beneath. And on that day, birds and fish are made. And then you have the creation of dry land. And then animals and people are made. So there's this cr- uh, careful, ordered uh, filling uh, of, of building and structuring and in filling up God's creation. And interestingly, man is given this in an opposite way. Uh, because of necessity, he fills the earth and then he is to structure the earth by subduing it and ruling it. But man's uh, rule then is a picture of being a craftsman like God. As God has crafted and created uh, the, the world, we're made in his image to have the royal dignity and the royal task of craftsmanship of work of labor in this world, that is our God likeness. Now think of this: that your image bearing specifically is is your expression of in work and craftsmanship, and for this to be demeaned as being some lowly thing because it's quote not spiritual flies in the face of biblical revelation. It's interesting in the Renaissance, uh, thinkers such as Ficino, Mirandi, and Pico della Marandola developed this interpretation of the image of God as a creative transformative energy by which humans, in imitation of God's own creative activity, shaped earthly life through cultural historical action whether in city building science politics scholarship or the arts we see the idea that we have this creative transformative energy as human beings made in the image of the god who has who creates things to create and build and form culture on the earth and so We are told there in Genesis 1 as image bearers of God, as the kings and queens of the earth to spread over the earth and make it our home because it is ours, ours to rule. So God is craftsman, God is king. We're in the image of this craftsman king to live out our craftsmanship, to live out our work in whatever area it is to his glory, manifesting his glory specifically by the work that we do. It's no wonder then that when you get to Psalm 8, it says that by putting all things under our feet and giving us dominion, that he's made us a little lower than God or a little lower than the heavenly beings or angels it may refer to. It's hard to know exactly what is intended. But either way, it means that we are representatives of the of God and the angelic heavenly court. We have a royal, godlike status in this world. Now that sounds almost blasphemous, you know, to say that we are godlike. But that's what Genesis one means, right? You are godlike. You are made like God. You are in His image, in His likeness. And it's very interesting to think of yourself going to work thinking I'm a godlike being fulfilling my godlike calling this particular way in which either in the home or at school or in the work I will manifest my godlikeness. You see this begins to move the word godly out of areas that we think have to do with whether you're reading the Bible or praying, or in particular, whether you're loving people in a certain way, to the work itself being done well in order to be godly. We'll speak to this in in a minute. So, this language of Psalm 8 is royal coronation of mankind. This is a royal coronation. You've been put on the throne of earth to rule this earth. To rule over God's works. And interestingly, where God is called majestic in verse 1, and his splendor is above the heavens, we are said to be crowned or adorned with glory. This is kabod. This is the glory of God. Now, it is not equal to the glory of God, but it it borrows from that or it it's like that glory in the sense that we're made like him and so we bring glory and honor to him by the very way we rule this world, the very way we do our work. And so <laughs> you could say for human beings in the beginning there was work, right? And you see this in Genesis chapter 2. He was not made uh, there. It was not a retirement village where he played ping pong, bridge, and shuffleboard all day, right? It wasn't a place of meditation and prayer all day. It was a place of work from the beginning. This was paradise, okay? (laughs) Whatever you think about work, and, and that's where Brian will come in next week and talk about the, the pain of work and the struggle of work and the difficulty of work, it's because of the fall. It's not because of work. Paradise was work. And another aspect of paradise was there was conflict in that there was a dragon in paradise, which is a whole different thing. But paradise sometimes is very different than what we think it, is. it was. And some of us honestly would say, well, I don't know that I'd want to be in the Garden of Eden if that's what it was. <laughs> Work. Uh, my idea of, of heaven is not work. As we will see, God's idea of heaven is work, reigning with Christ. I suggest to you that reigning is difficult. Ask Obama if reigning is easy or hard, right? Ask any leader how difficult it is to reign. That's what you're called to do now, that's what you will do in eternity. Work is vital to who you are as a human being. And part of what we are to be about is to find out how our work can be joyful, energetic, how we can do our work to God's glory and do it well. Um, This is underscored, of course, in the fourth commandment. Six days shall you labor and do your work. Uh, So, the moral law assumes work is the normal course of your life and it's punctuated by rest to refresh us so that we can do our work. And you would think maybe in paradise that if they were perfect and holy, then the most holy thing they could have been done was to pray all day. But work is no less holy than prayer. And that's one of the problems with our modern evangelical approach to work So let's think of then a little bit of work in God's image. Our God, you see, is the God who plans, who creates, who builds, who has an eye for shape, for symmetry, for color and shading and detail and harmony. He organizes and structures massive and intricate ecosystems. He integrates them and maintains them. He planned and built the human bodies, interlocking systems that are complex beyond comprehension. He is not only an engineer and a builder. He is a repairman. I use "man" loosely, of course. For example, there's a bewildering whirr of repairs being carried out in organisms, including humans, all over the world. I just observed one recently as I was trying to clean my razor, and I went the wrong way, stupidly. And I cut a chunk out of my thumb. This was the very day we had the children's party. And kids, you might have noticed the big thing bandage on my thumb that day. Well, now you can hardly tell it's there. Who is it down there that's doing that job of work, you know? But that's what God does. He sets up. He's a repairman. And he's, he, repairs are being carried out all over the place. He's a janitor with an elaborate system for waste disposal and cleanup within any organism. And then when any organism dies, God does every kind of work you can imagine. So, figuring out a solution to a problem in any field is a godly, godlike thing to do. See? The thing itself is godlike. It is a right thing to do. Studying ways to accomplish your work more efficiently and productively is a good and holy thing. Writing a good report is a holy thing. Studying for math is a holy thing. Giving a good presentation is an act of obedience. Fixing a good meal, cleaning a bathtub, putting in a row of azaleas, studying history, repairing a water main, a microscope or a jet. Everything we do is an imitation of this God who communicates, who creates, who makes and maintains, who repairs and cleans. It doesn't matter what your work is, from yard work, assembly line work, professional work, public work, housework, homework. If it is lawful work, then you must see it as your calling from God and see his pleasure in your work. As Eric Little did, talking to his sister. She wanting him to get on to the mission field. And he says, when I run, I feel his pleasure. And brothers and sisters... You're not to feel his pleasure when you get off from work and then you go to a men's discussion group. Now I feel his pleasure. Now I'm doing something significant. Now I'm doing something spiritual. But as you work, in your work, as you diligently give yourself to your work, I am doing the spiritual, godlike thing, the royal task God has laid out for me. And it has continuity in some way that we will explore. But it has continuity with my eternal work and reign with God in the new heavens and the new earth. It is wrong, therefore, to think everything we do just burns up and it's gone and forgotten. It is no more. And we're going to just be floating in a cloud and not doing anything forever. That is just not the Bible. We are made to reign Uh, Psalm 8 celebrates our reign even as fallen human beings and Psalm 2 contemplates the restoration of that reign in Jesus Christ and we are told several times in the New Testament and you will reign with him we will reign with him in that final day (coughs) and so work and labor is a vital part of our whole future (coughs) well (coughs) There is this great quote from Dorothy Sayers, and uh, very telling. How can anyone remain interested in a religion which seems to have no concern with nine-tenths of this life? Why would you have an interest in this religion that tells you most of what you do is not significant? And the only significant things that you do is support me so I can speak to you, right, right? And do some things like I do that really are significant. So there's this few, this reminds me, by the way, of uh, the Muslim idea that for men that get to heaven, they're going to have this host of women for the rest of their lives. Do you think a guy might have thought that up? (laughs) You think maybe a guy thought that up as a good idea? Yeah, maybe so. And sadly, it would only be people who are teaching the Word that would come up with this idea that what I'm doing has significance and what you're doing doesn't. I mean, it borders on blasphemy to me that would go so against what Scripture says about the inerrant dignity and glory about what every single one of you are doing in every single job that you do, unless it's something illegal or whatever, of course. So, Dorothy Sayers, The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. There you go. That's what God says. Carpenter, make good tables. Make good tables. Work at it. Craft it. Study it. Practice it. Work over and over and over until you can do it. Make good tables tables that is godliness church by all means and decent forms of amusement certainly but what use is all that if in the very center of his life and occupation he is insulting God with bad carpentry (laughs) one of the sad things that has happened and hopefully it's not as much but when I was in school being a Christian especially if you're going into full-time Christian ministry and for good or ill and some of you probably uh, at least have expressed to me I'm glad this happened to you and others probably would say gosh I wish it hadn't happened to you I would probably be a doctor if I had been under the influence of RUF because my dad was a doctor and I loved biology and math and did real well in it, and I was going to be a doctor until I was told that the most significant, the only real significant thing you can do is to go in the ministry. And that changed the course of my life early on. And some of you are like, gosh, I wish you had. You know, <laughs> some of you maybe at least have said, I'm glad that happened to you. And I'm, I'm thankful and I don't look back, I don't look over my shoulder. This is part of God's providence in my life. <clears throat> but one of the things that also was true for us. Not only were we told that, you know, the real significant thing is to go into ministry, but this also made us think, we don't really have to do that well in school anyway, you know? I mean, you're a Christian, you're going to ministry, it doesn't matter if you make straight A's. I mean, if you have some C's or if you have a D or B, it doesn't matter. Just, just float along and spend most of your time doing ministry while you're at college because... Studying doesn 't really count it 's the spiritual things that you do that count and this This kind of thinking has you know been deadly in the church and it 's shown in by one professor I uh had in music uh, said the thing that bothers me about you Christians is that people who are not Christians are just at trying to be excellent musicians, practicing hour after hour after hour to make a place to to gain a significant position to, to do music in this world while you people just seem to think it's going to be handed to you or you're not responsible. It doesn't matter to you. He just thought of Christians as a joke because of how we approached work. And I think... He was seeing something better than those Christians were. That there's something human and real and significant about work that even Christians weren't seeing. Christians were demeaning themselves. And so, whatever your area, and we'll talk about this in redemption because you know work is hard in different aspects of work and caring for many children, many young children at home can just be debilitating sometimes. And and how do we bring the gospel and how do we bring God's grace into every aspect of our work? But let's begin here. We're made royal creatures, God-like creatures to do the work that God has given us, imaging Him in everything we do. Let us pray. Lord, we pray that you would... uh, Open up our hearts to see the glory and beauty of what you have done for us in making us in your image. And Lord, we would acknowledge even now that we fail uh, in many ways to live out that glory, to acknowledge it, to manifest specifically and purposely uh, the glory of God in what we do And Lord, we have in many ways demeaned work uh, either by not giving ourselves to it, not seeking ways in which to give ourselves more completely to it, to develop it, to to be diligent in it, to be creative and initiating in it, uh, to see how we can do our work better, more excellently. Uh, Lord, we have manifested in many ways uh, the fact that we do not value who we are as human beings and what we've been made to do in your image we thank you that you redeem us in Christ Jesus we thank you that true reign has been won for us in Christ and that we will one day reign and that work will be will have all of its curse removed from us all of the painful aspects of work the parts that are connected to the curse of sin will be gone, and we will work with perfect liberty and joy and energy forever and ever. Uh, Lord, we thank you for this calling to be like God and pray that you would give us grace, that we would give ourselves to these things uh, with with great anticipation and expectation and energy by your Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.